0: Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostle, and after praying they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people, but some of the men from what was called the synagogue of the freemen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking." Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him make blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man insistently speaks against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. The high priest said, Are these things so? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning truly with thanksgiving. That despite us, you desire us. And in doing so, you have made it possible for us to know you all through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we look at your word, we ask for your wisdom, Lord, to allow you to work in our hearts what only you can do, that you be glorified. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for not being silent. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, Charlie and Patsy are having a great time. <laughs> Don't know why that's funny, but <sighs> all right. Anyway, they, uh, Patsy sent a picture to Arlene of them standing in the rain, smiling. <laughs> Isn't that a disgusting thought? <laughs> anyway, let's pray for them that they continue to have a, a restful, joyful time. So, in looking at these two chapters, and mostly chapter 6, the thought has come to me, uh, Tylan and I are reading through Andrew Murray's book, Humility. And you just, you know, Andrew Murray points out that humility and the life of Christ are synonymous. That being the case, humility is not something we achieve. It's not something we accomplish, rather it's something that we put on in our pursuit of Christ. Colossians 3.12 says this, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. How do we do that then? If if humility is not something we achieve, if it's it's something we put on as we pursue Christ, then how do we put on Christ? Well, two verses down in Colossians 3.15, it says this, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Humility is not something that we accomplish, it is something we put on. As we pursue Christ, as soon as we try to be humble, think about this as soon as you try to be humble, you've already failed. Because that is an activity, believing that there is something within you that can be pleasing to the Lord. Humility is the outcome of yielding to Christ and letting him have his way. And this is a consistent thought throughout scripture. Listen to Colossians 3:17. Whatever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, which means by the power of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks through him to God the Father. Ephesians 6:10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Humility is not something we accomplish, it is something we put on as we pursue Christ. Andrew Murray once said this, that the humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praised while he is forgotten, because he has received the Spirit of Jesus who pleased not himself, and who sought not his own honor. Therefore, in putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, he has put on the heart of compassion, kindness, meekness, long-suffering, and humility. And so with this thought of the humility of the believer as a result of faith in Christ, The first thing that I see in our chapter here in 6 is the humility from yielding to the Lord and giving preference to others. I read of an accident back in 1986 where two ships collided in the Black Sea just off the coast of Russia. It was a horrible event. People died. But as the news began to come out it was revealed that the accident did not come as a result of some kind of technical problem, the no radar problem, there was no it wasn't because of weather. It was simply it was simply because of the stubbornness of the two captains. Both of them were aware of the other ship, but neither would yield to the other. Once they came to their senses, it was too late and people died. We find the problem in verse 1. Now, as the, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. We have here the Hellenistic Jews. These, this is the early church church. They're meeting daily. They're communing daily. We have the problem that the Hellenistic Jews, they're, they're, uh, these would be those that spoke primarily Greek. They are descendants of the ones who did not return from captivity. Instead, they stayed where they had been brought into captivity, and they assimilated into that culture. According to the Hebrew writings known as the Talmud, they were described as being second-class Israelites, even tainted Jews. And then we have the native Hebrews. Now these were those who spoke primarily Aramaic, and they would be descendants of those who did return from captivity, along with Ezra and Nehemiah, to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls and rebuild their society. Bob Utley points out that this being the case, there were certainly cultural and even racial overtones in this situation. And unfortunately, though these are born-again believers in Christ, they have continued this into the early life of the church. It's possible. It's possible for those who have placed their faith in Christ to live contrary to the clear teaching of the word. James chapter 2, verse 1 says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. So what's the solution here? In verse 5, the apostles had gotten together and they told the church, you need to select seven men. And so they do. They select the seven men who will take care of the serving of the tables. And the apostles are not, it's not that they don't want to do this. It's not that they see this beneath them, but it's not what the Lord has for them. And so if they are to do this themselves, then they would be neglecting what the Lord has. It's not that this is more important. It's not that them teaching and preaching is more important. It's simply, this is not what the Lord has for them. And so other members of the body must take this on. And so these seven men, and it's interesting, isn't it? The names... The problem is a problem between the Hellenistic Jews and the, um, I'm forgetting already, the Hellen- and the native Hebrews. And so what do they do? They come together and these are the ones that they select to take this position Stephen, Philip, Procreus, Nicanor, Timon, Paramenus, all Greek names. And then Nicholas, who's not even a Jew by birth, but a proselyte. They choose seven that are really among the minority. It's believed that the native Hebrews would have been the vast majority of the church. The Hellenistic Jews would have been the minority. So here we see that the majority give preference. Think about this. The majority, this goes against us as Americans, doesn't it? The majority gives preference to the minority. Familiar words to us in Philippians chapter 2. Where Paul says this, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection... And compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Isn't this supposed to be natural? If Christ lives in us, then what is true of him be seen in us? Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. One of the first things that Charlie did when he became the director of his hill, he took a look at the student manual and he began to rip pages out of it. Not that he had a problem with what the, these rules were trying to achieve, he agreed with that, but the Lord just gave him a check. There's just a little bit too much in here." And he sat down with the staff, and he talked with them, and he said this: "We are a discipleship ministry." And these rules that we have for our students should not be for the convenience of the staff. If we see something that needs to be corrected, if we see something that needs to be dealt with, then we don't want to point to the rule on page 7, section 3. But we need to come alongside. We need to walk with them in this. And I know, having been on staff for years, that it is very easy for me to hide behind the student manual. For 14 years as the principal, very easy for me to hide behind the manual. Because to come out from behind the manual will require sacrifice. It will require giving preference to the student. Imagine that. As a young man, I guess I could call myself that, I was in the youth group in our church growing up. Our parents used to open their house up regularly for the youth to come over and to swim. One of those nights, it was a Sunday night after church, I walked into the living room as some of the other students were just getting there, walking in. There was a young girl there who had never been to our our house before. You could tell by looking at her that she didn't come from a very wealthy family or a family that had much at all. She walked about ten steps into the house. She stopped. and I can picture it in my mind now. And She just looked up and began to observe all that was in the room and then without looking to anybody she just said out loud this is the nicest home that I've ever been in my mom was sitting nearby and she heard her say it and she jumped up and she went over to this girl and she said well welcome here we're so glad you're with us I remember as a I just, just I was in high school and I can remember just being staggered by this. And then I got to watch something that what the Lord did with this nice house. He used it as a way to show this young girl much more than just a nice house with a swimming pool. But She got to be around believers. She got to hear what what was on our heart. I found that my mom and dad continued to do this long after Paul and I left the house. Those six years that we were back in Louisiana, I was in charge of a renovation of one of my dad's apartments. And one of the trades was there. I got into a conversation with him, didn't know him, had never seen him before. And in the course of the conversation, he tells me that he used to attend this church, which was ours in growing up. And he said, one of my best memories is that there was this older couple in the church that would always have us over to go swimming. And those people were so kind. They were just the nicest people that I had ever met. I stood there and I I asked, well, was the house over here? He said, Yeah. I said, I know that house. It was not always convenient for my mom to have all those people in her house. Sometimes it was inconvenient. As you know, youth groups, very seldom will they come in and not touch everything and not go everywhere and not do everything. But mom and dad saw them as more important. So what was the outcome here? Well, in verse 7... We see that the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The word of God kept spreading. There was a problem there, there was a real problem, and they didn't have to post, here we go, they didn't have to post blacked out screens. They didn't have to march and protest. They didn't have to stand up, and make political statements. Instead, what did they do? They gave preference to one another. And what happened? The word of God continued to spread. So much to the point that a large number, a great number, it says, of the priests were coming to Christ. Now, what was a, what's a great number? Well, it's been, it's, it's been studied and figures that probably there were about 8,000 priests that served in the temple. And this passage says a whole bunch of them came to faith in Christ. So we see the humility from yielding to the Lord in giving preference to others. Now we're going to see the humility from yielding to the Lord when facing adversity. And the rest of this chapter and in chapter 7 deals with Stephen. One of the seven, what do we know about him? Well, we know in verse 2 that the issue is the serving of the tables. They need someone to serve. The word serve there in verse 2 is And Diakoneo comes from the word diakoneos. Diakonios is used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, and there it's translated into English as deacons. So it's largely assumed that these are the first deacons of the church. What do we know about them? What do we know about Stephen from this passage? What qualifies them to be deacons? Well, from this passage, they had to be a man of good reputation and full of the spirit and of wisdom. Again, First Timothy chapter three. I was having breakfast yesterday with Austin, and we were talking about this passage. And he says he thinks, man, first, just right away, First Timothy came to his mind in thinking about Timothy, what kind of man he was. Well, First Timothy three eight to ten says this: Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested. So they're showing that this is true of them. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Also it says in 1 Timothy that the deacon is to be a husband of only one wife, a good manager of their children and their own household household. I like to tell our students when we go through this, ladies, this is the kind of guy you want to bring home. And guys, this is the man that we want to be. That's who Stephen is. We find in verse 5 that Stephen was a man full of faith. In verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. In verse 10, But they were unable to cope with the wisdom of the spirit with which he was speaking. Verse 15, And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And then in chapter 7, just before he dies, in verse 55, But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This man is spirit-filled. The very life of Christ indwelling him. Therefore, when the Jewish leadership attacks Stephen, it is not Stephen that is being attacked, but it is Christ. So when the enemy attacks you, who's he going after? Is he going after you or is he having to deal with Jesus? Now, who's making the charges? Who's making the charges against Stephen? And who is it that's going to try Stephen? Well, we know that from verse 9, there were men from the synagogue of the freedmen who brought the charges against Stephen. Who who are these people? The, The freedmen. Well, they were free slaves. These were men who had been slaves from all over the world and have been able to obtain or to get their freedom, and now they've moved to Jerusalem. And it's suspected that Paul who will someday be the Apostle, is one of them. If that's the case, then he's one of these men who tried to debate with Stephen and couldn't do it. We know that he shows up in this story in chapter 7 and verse 58, when they had driven him, that being Stephen, out of the city, and they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of the young man, named Saul. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. So Paul, who at this time is Saul, is very much engaged with what's going on. They are call themselves free men. But listen, man's freedom is not found in man's will. Man's freedom is not found in man's understanding. But we have been set free to live in the Lord's will. Think about it. Why are we free? Because we have been freed from us. Galatians 5 verse 1, It was for freedom that Christ Set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20. For you have, been, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. In Colossians 2 and verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, empty deception, according to the tradition of men, elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. You see, we are to be taken captive. We have been set free to be captivated by Christ. Which is true of our created intent. To live out his very image. Okay, so now that's... Who accuses him? The freedmen. Who is it that will try him? Well, the council, according to verse 12, they bring him before the council, which is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would consist of, first of all, the one who would be the head of the Sanhedrin would be the high priest himself. But it would also consist of former high priests, other religious leaders, and heads of the twelve tribes. Now think about this. These are all accomplished and successful men. Some, if not most of them, demanded their own way. We know that from watching the trial of Christ. We know that from looking at the trial that Peter, that Paul and John had to go through in chapter 3 from last week these were arrogant men and certainly not humble paul would identified with them you know paul being a part of all that's going on right now in this story he tells us later in life that he could identify with them that he was one of these kind of men As he says in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which was in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And listen to this, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He had come to realize that his achievements Now, in our society today, this should scream to us that my achievements, my accomplishments, my successes are nothing. What was the charge that they brought against Stephen? Well, in verse 14, they said that he's preaching that Christ will destroy all that Moses has given us. Well, that's a good charge. It's a good thing that that was the charge, because since they're accusing Christ of destroying, it is Christ who will respond. You see in verse 15, fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. We've got to understand this, the, the setting here. The, Stephen being the one that's accused, the position that he takes, you know, we think of the courtroom situation nowadays. The one that's accused, he sits in the, in the, in the box, right, and he's asked the questions. But in this setting, it would be different. And this is really important to see because of what happens later in the next chapter. The position that he would take being the accused would be one who stood before the accusers. And so what's going on? Standing before the accusers... This is their charge. So as they talk, as the accusers are talking, the focus is on them. Those who are part of the Sanhedrin are looking at these who are making the accusation. And they they say this, This man says that Christ will destroy all that Moses has given us. So then what? what? They switch their attention to this man. And when they look from the accuser to the accused, they see something interesting that has happened. That his face has been changed. They're saying, their accusation is that this man is going to take away all that Moses gave us. Listen to Exodus chapter 34, verse 29. And it came about, when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of testimony were in Moses' hand... As he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. This is almost kind of comical. This man says that Jesus will take away all that Moses has given us. They look at this man and his face has changed like Moses it's as though God was saying, no, this man's not against me. This man is with me. This man is mine. But it doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything to the one who is not humble. It doesn't mean anything to the one who does not look to Jesus. And being, this being the case... We find now that when Stephen speaks, it's no longer Stephen that's on trial. Isn't that funny? But now we will see that it's actually the Sanhedrin and the freedmen that will be put on trial. Stephen will present the case, and then he will give the verdict at the end. And what is it? What is Stephen's argument? Well, wrapped up in a nutshell, basically it's this. God is not required to live in your box. We all have a box that we like to put God in. We want to worship God, but we want to understand Him. And we want to be comfortable with Him. And so this is what we understand. This is what I'm comfortable with. This is what I'm good with. This is what I will worship. And we put God in that box. And we want Him to stay there in that box. And we're going to find that this is exactly what the problem is with the Jews. They want God to stay in their box. That's called the temple. And so look at what he says about this in chapter 7 and verse 2. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. God showed himself not in the temple, but in what? In Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran. In verse 3, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Verse 9, the, uh, I'm sorry, no, uh, verse 20. It was at this time that Moses was born. So now, see, he's given the history of the nation. And it never it didn't start at the temple. It started with their father Abraham in Mesopotamia. And now he goes on and he's progressed to the point where now they're slaves in Egypt. And what happens there? Verse 20, it was that at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. Then later in life, Moses... Hiding on the backside of the desert in verse 30, look what happens. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and he approached to look more closely. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. It's not the temple. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans. And I have come down to rescue them. Come now. And I will send you not to Israel, not to Jerusalem, but to Egypt. Verse 42. But God turned away and He delivered them up to serve the host of heavens. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it? O house of Israel. Verse 44. Our fathers had been, had, had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, not in Jerusalem, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it, in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon uh, dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. Verse 48, "...however, the Most High does not dwell in houses." made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my reprose? Was it not my hand which made all things? God is not limited to your expectation. He is not limited to our requirement of him. The Sanhedrin felt that God dwelt only in the temple. This is not humility, this is arrogance. He is not limited to our arrogance. How do we limit the experience of God? How do we limit the the presence of God, the life of God in our lives? We think that God can only work within certain confines, only certain situations, He can only work only a certain way if I do a certain thing, if I achieve something, if I understand something, if I pray hard enough. And in doing so, we actually limit him. We require him to live in our expectations. Major Thomas once said this, that Christ is limited. First time I read that, I really struggled. And I had to read it again and again, and I had, to, I had it was a battle that I had with this statement. I told Major that later on in life, and he thought it was funny. Christ is limited only by the measure of our availability to all that he makes available to us. You see, we have made, been made complete in Christ. But so often, what do we do? We, we draw on the limit, limited resources of ourselves, And require him to live in that. I have, Arlene and I have a niece. When she was a little girl for Christmas, she was given one of those great big playhouses. I don't know if the kids still play with those things, but our girls had the same thing. Huge playhouse. And inside the playhouse, you know, was the kitchen area with the sink, and there was a telephone and a little table and a little chair. They gave this to our our niece on Christmas morning. My brother-in-law had set it all up the night before as a big surprise they waited for her to come into the room, and she did. She came running into the room on Christmas morning with her little nighty, and she just lit up. She couldn't believe it. Her parents were standing there watching, and they were so excited when they saw that their daughter was so excited. They figured they did the right thing. She smiled, and she ran toward her gift. And in doing so, she ran right past the playhouse, straight to the box that the playhouse came in. (laughs) And she played for three days in the box. Her parents never said a word. They just wanted to watch this. What's going to happen? And you know what she did with that box? She pretended that it was a playhouse. She pretended that it had furniture in it. She pretended that there was a little phone in there. She pretended that she had windows. She pretended for three days until one day she stepped outside. And walking around her box, the playhouse caught her attention. She went over to the playhouse and she started to look at it. And she reached over and she found this is a real doorknob. And she opened it up and she went inside and there was a real play phone. And there was a real table. And there was a real kitchen. There were real windows with real shutters that opened and closed. And she left the box behind. She had been given the playhouse, but she was content to pretend. You have been made complete in Christ. There is nothing more to add but everything to abide in. The humility that is yours is yours. The humility that is Christ is yours. and becomes a reality as you are taken with him. And not the box. Christ is limited only by the measure of our availability to all that he makes available to us. Colossians 2 9 and 10 For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. He's the head. See, this is our reality. He is the head of all rule and authority. Are you limiting him in your life? So Stephen now sums up by giving his verdict. In chapter 7, at verses 48 to 50, we've already read those verses, but there he's saying this. God is not limited to man's wisdom. He's not limited to your ability Do you believe that? Whatever you're facing in life, do you believe that God is not limited to your ability? 1 Corinthians 3.19 says this, For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. Listen, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. What's his verdict? That's found in verses 51 to 53. You men who are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the Righteous One, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. What's his verdict? You are guilty. You are arrogant. There is no humility found here. And so they lose their minds in verse 54. They gnash their teeth. They go at him. But look at the outcome. The outcome of the one who has yielded to Christ. verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and Jesus, what's he doing? Standing. Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. In the book of Hebrews, we find that Jesus is is seated at the right hand of God. But now we see something different happens. The one who is seated at the right hand of God stands up. Remember the position of the accused? Stephen being the one who is accused, what is his position? It's to stand before the accusers. But then when Stephen, the most intense moment of his life, as these grown men are gnashing their teeth, they've lost it. He's about to be killed by the very people that he knows killed his Savior. And what does he do? He looks up into heaven and he sees the Son of God, not sitting, but what? Standing. As though he was telling Stephen, this is not about you, it's about me. And I've got this. And so, what do they do? They take him, they rush him out of the city. The result, first of all, for this man who is truly humble as he yields to Christ is that he sees Jesus. And then, what happens? Jesus speaks. He says this in verse 57, But they cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears, and they rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the foot of the young man named Saul. Now listen to the words. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Have you heard somebody else say that? Verse 60, then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Have you heard somebody else say that? Having said this, he fell asleep. The result of the one who will trust the Lord, yield to him, is true humility is truly the life of Christ. All of Christ and all of Stephen is all Stephen needed to die and to die well. Are you putting on humility? Are you busy trying to achieve it? Are you trusting Jesus or arrogantly Requiring that God stay in your box. This hits home with me. I was really struggling over this message. I was having a hard time putting everything together. There were so many thoughts going on in my head. The Lord was just working this out all week long in discussions that I had with people and discussions we had at work, in my morning Bible study. And just on and on again in the book that I said that Tyler and I are reading together, just day after day, the Lord's just pouring all of this on without me having to sit down and have this you know, official study time to get ready for the message. But then, yesterday when I tried to put it all together, started in the morning and throughout the day. It went into the afternoon. It was moving into the evening. Arlene was hoping that we'd be able to spend some time together. I wanted that too. And I was getting frustrated because I had all these things going. I couldn't put it together. It didn't make sense. I couldn't fit this. I had too many thoughts going on in my head. And then the Lord just simply spoke to me as I was looking at all of this garbled stuff. Are you putting on humility? are arrogantly requiring God to stay in your box. You see, this sermon can't be preached unless I get all the points in order, unless I get all the illustrations laid out, unless I know exactly what I'm going to say. And the Lord just spoke to my heart. Kelly, close everything up and go be with your family. And I got to tell you, it was a scary thing to do. But isn't that interesting that the Lord didn't need me for me to preach? In closing, Andrew Murray said this, What a hopeless task if we had to do the work. Nature can never overcome nature. Not even with the help of grace. Grace. Self can never cast out self, even in the regenerate man. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. How? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with thanksgiving. That you have literally lived and continue to live the very demand that you place on us. And so we ask for your wisdom, Lord, to yield. To live this life that you have created us for. That humility be seen and you be glorified. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening.